Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 3, 14, 12 through 14. This is the word of God. Take care, brothers, that there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's open our time in prayer. Father, we're so grateful to come to your word this morning. We're grateful that uh, you comfort us, you convict us where we need to be convicted. I pray that this morning. I pray as your word pierces our hearts like a double-edged sword that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, but also those who are suffering, those who are hurting. I just pray that you would comfort them as only you can do for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Guthrie tells a story about Harry Houdini, the famous escape artist. In 1904, he was challenged by a newspaper in London to escape from a complex form of handcuffs with six locks on each cuff and nine tumblers on each lock, a contraption which took the locksmith five years to make. And Houdini accepted the challenge. About 4,000 people gathered to see if he could do it. So after the cuffs were securely fastened, he ducked into a box out of sight and popped up about 20 minutes later to a roaring applause. But they quieted down when they realized he still had the handcuffs on. He asked for more light and went back into the box again. After 15 more minutes, he came up again to more applause But he smiled and said he just needed to stretch his legs. And he went down to the box again. After 20 more minutes, he came up with a pocket knife from his vest, which he put in his mouth, using it to slash off his coat, saying he was getting too hot. Then he went back into the box again. The crowd kept cheering him on. And after just 10 more minutes, he jumped out free, holding the cuffs in his hand. The crowd gave him an extending ovation. And ultimately, he actually broke down and wept and said it was the most difficult escape of his career. And the reporter asked him later why he kept coming out of the box when he was not yet free. And Houdini said this, I needed to hear that encouragement from the crowd to keep going because of the temptation to give up. Following Jesus is often challenging. To say the least, the Christian life is filled with discouragement and complexities that can tempt us to give up. Many things that can make it difficult to keep going. Our being increasingly alienated from our culture, perhaps our family members or relatives. We can grow weary of constantly being out of step with the mainstream. It gets old. Constantly chafing against the way of the world, our exhaustion with difficult relationships and discord, not to mention our never-ending struggle with our own sin. So many things can get us discouraged 
And we need encouragement and exhortation from one another to keep going. The author of Hebrews is writing to people who were in such circumstances. It was hard. There was persecution, discouragement, all kinds of reasons to give up. Go back to Judaism. Go back to something safer, something easier, something more comfortable. So far in the letter, the author has magnified the greatness of Jesus Christ. How he far surpasses anything in this world and anything out of this world, including angels. And now he begins to switch to exhortation. To call his audience to account. Be faithful. You might say he goes from teaching to preaching. He's been explaining to them the truth But now he's exhorting them to act on the basis of that truth. In our passage today, he calls these Christians to be faithful. And likewise, we need to respond to Jesus with enduring faith. A trust in him that continues to the end. The author here gives a positive example of faithfulness and then a negative one. And we will look at at these examples together and then consider some principles we can draw as it relates to being faithful as a follower of Jesus. How to keep going as a Christian and not give up. So number one in your outline, as Ben mentions, you you have an outline in your bulletin. I encourage you to follow along. And also just follow along in the scripture as I read the first six verses of, of, of this chapter. This is the example of faithfulness. Jesus, who is greater than Moses. Verse 1, therefore, holy brothers, and this implies holy sisters too, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as, as much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses, who Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So, We see the first exhortation here in in verse 1. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, as we we saw last week with Jeff, Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He He became fully human and dealt with our sin on the cross. But he's also called an apostle, which just means one who is sent. He doesn't mean here the office of apostle like Peter or Paul, but apostle in the sense he was sent from heaven. He's divine from heaven and human, high priest. That is our confession as believers. Jesus is Lord, God in the flesh, sent from heaven to save sinners by his human death and resurrection as the great high priest. It's the gospel, our confession. A lot there in the first verse, but the big takeaway for our purposes today is that he was faithful. Verse 2, mission accomplished. He completed exactly what he was sent to do. Now, 
In the second part of verse 2, the author compares him to Moses. And the reason is this. Moses basically stands for the first covenant. The hero of Judaism. For those tempted to go back to the old covenant and abandon faith in Jesus, Moses would be the standard bearer of faithfulness for the people of God under that covenant. Remember, at the very beginning of Hebrews in chapter 1, the author says that in ages past, the Lord spoke many times in many ways to their ancestors. Many mediated messages from God. And there was none greater in those ages past than Moses. Remember, he was divinely chosen. He was God's great deliverer out of Egypt. Remarkable displays of power in the various plagues. He led them in the exodus through the Red Sea as on dry ground. He received the Ten Commandments from God on the mountain. He was the law giver to God's people. Not only the Ten Commandments, but all the sacrificial laws, ceremonial, civil laws, the tabernacle. They would ask, how do we relate to God? Ask Moses. He also had a very unique relationship with God. God speaks to most of the prophets through visions or dreams. But the Bible tells us God spoke to Moses face to face, as it were, as a man speaks to his friend. Moses was a faithful servant of God. Now, this is important. The author does not denigrate Moses at all. It's not like there was a false teaching out there that was elevating Moses too high. That wasn't the case. The issue is they're not elevating Christ high enough. Both Moses and Jesus were faithful. But in terms of comparison, it's not close and it's not fair. To compare them is a category mistake. As great as Moses was, he was a member of the people of God. Jesus created the people of God. That's what he's saying here in the discussion about the house. The house is the people of God. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ made the house, the creator of God's people. Think of the two descriptors of Jesus in verse 1, the sent one, apostle, and high priest. Moses was sent by God to reveal things to his people, but Jesus was sent from heaven to reveal God because he was God. In terms of the high priesthood, Aaron, by way of Moses, was a mediator between God and man with the sacrifices. But Jesus is God the Son who mediates through himself once for all. As John Wesley said, the Christians here are reminded that they now enjoy a much better placed mediator with God. Not a servant, but the Son. So Jesus is the builder, the agent of creation. It says the builder of all things is God. Verses 3 and 4 clearly speaks to the fact that the Son is God. But then he's also distinct from God. Verse 6, he's faithful over God's house as a son. This is the majesty of the God-man we saw in the first few verses of the letter. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is worthy of more glory as God the Son. Al Mohler says this, Moses was a man, Christ the God-man. Moses was a sinner judged for his sin. The sinless Christ was judged for the sin of his people. Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage to Egypt, but failed to lead them into the land of promise. Christ, the second Moses, leads his people out of bondage to sin, takes them all the way to the land of promise, the eternal kingdom. 
So the audience here in Hebrews is faced with the temptation. And the temptation is this. It's easier to go back to the Old Covenant and endure less persecution than we are as Jesus followers. So the author reminds them that Moses was indeed a faithful servant, verse 5, but he testified to the things that would be spoken later. Well, that to which he testified to is here. In Deuteronomy 18, this is what Moses testified. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Well, the prophet like Moses has arrived, and it is Jesus Christ. So even Moses is telling them, listen to Jesus. Let's look at the last verse of this section. Verse 6. He says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So we are his house, that is to say, we belong to the people of God, if indeed we hold fast. Well, what does he mean by this condition? We're going to flesh this out later, but the only legitimate faith in Christ is a faith that perseveres, a faith that endures to the end. People that fall away did not have saving faith, despite what they once appeared to be. And he illustrates this phenomenon with the next section. Number two in your outline, the example of unfaithfulness, the wilderness Generation, Please read with me in your own Bible, starting at verse 7 to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Cockerell calls this a brief history of the disobedient. The author takes us back to Psalm 95, where the psalmist recounts some of the history of this wilderness generation. These were those who participated in the exodus out of Egypt, crossed through the Red Sea, and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. First at Rephidim, which God later named Meribah in Exodus 17, where the people grumbled, and Moses got water from the rock. And then in Kadesh Barnea, Numbers 20, where Moses struck the rock for water again. These two incidents sort of bookend the story of the wilderness wanderings and the unbelief and stubborn hearts of the people. They put the Lord to the test. And there's a key moment 
in Numbers 14, when Israel stood at a sort of a crossroads, determining whether or not to obey the Lord. Joshua and Caleb exhorted them not to rebel against the Lord, but they wanted to return to the safety of Egypt. Slavery seemed better than this to them. They appeared to be the redeemed people of God. They had seen his mighty works. They'd been freed from slavery, but they wanted to go back, proving they really didn't know this God or his ways. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't be like them. Don't repeat the pattern of this unfaithful generation. Don't turn out to be just apparently redeemed. Don't turn out to be people that only look like God rescued, but actually wanting to go back to slavery after all. Those apparently redeemed in the wilderness seemed like the people of God. Ultimately, they did not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. Amazingly, the majority of that original generation were apostate, not legitimate people of God. They were on the verge of the promised land, and they rebelled. And they didn't get in because the Lord in his wrath, verse 11, swore he would not let them in. So the author, recalling that event, appeals to his readers in the same way. Don't repeat their error. You're on the verge of the promised land, if you will. The new creation, that which is promised by Jesus. Don't turn away in unbelief. Finish strong. The promises are imminent. Now the author refers to this realization of the promises as God's rest. This is a key theme in Hebrews, and Ben will unpack this theme of rest next week. But suffice it to say, there's an urgency from the author to enter that rest. Take care, brothers, he says in verse 12. An unbelieving heart leads you to fall away from the living God. We see this repeated condition, notice it in verse 14. Like we saw in verse 6 above. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. That original confidence was the trust they put in Christ. The profession of faith when they received the gospel of Jesus as true. That faith needs to persevere to the end or it's not real faith. Faith that does not endure is not legitimate Faith. It's like an Israelite coming out of Egypt, seeing all the plagues, the Red Sea parting, all the amazing works of God he saw. And yet through the wandering in the wilderness, their initial confidence did not endure and their unbelief prevailed. They did not enter God's rest. He emphasizes this point in verse 16. Who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? Those were the people God saved. Those were the people God rescued. It's those people who rebelled. It's those people that did not enter the promised land. If those people, the people that saw those kinds of works from God, if those people fell away and did not inherit the promise, this can happen to anyone. Make sure your confidence in Christ continues to the end. Make sure your trust in him does not fade into unbelief. Well, you might be thinking, I don't want that to happen. (laughs) What should I do? Verse 13, exhort one another every 
day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Beware. Sin will deceive you. You're not that smart. I'm sorry. You're not that good. Without each other, we are sitting ducks for the enemy. Exhort one another every day. We must look out and guard one another and encourage one another. Don't go it alone. As one commentator said, the Christian faith is a community project, a mutual endeavor. We all have blind spots. The deceitfulness of sin affects us all, sometimes in different ways, but sin is alluring, making it seem more secure and pleasurable than obedience and faithfulness. Think about it. If the Israelites, seeing all these wonders, were still so deceived to be tempted to return to slavery in Egypt, anything is possible. The deceitfulness of sin started way back in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? And it hasn't stopped. What was that deceit in the Garden? Don't believe God. He's not actually good. He doesn't have your best in mind. He just wants to keep the best from you. This forbidden fruit is the best, which is exactly why he doesn't want you to have it. He's not really good. So we need others to call us out when we're teetering on believing these kinds of lies. As long as it is called today, in other words, now is the time to listen. Now is the time to avoid the tragic mistake of their ancestors, those people who hardened their hearts. We need each other. We need the church to persevere. We learn later in chapter 10, there were those who had stopped meeting with the believers. So some in his audience were in danger of forsaking the assembly of the church. They were sawing off the branch of faithfulness they were sitting on. They needed the church to persevere. We all do. So the author is telling us that genuine faith is tied to perseverance. Endurance is needed. Perseverance is the sign. Those who do not persevere were not saved. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, if you don't hold on to your confidence, then although you were once saved, now you'll lose your salvation. No, that's not what it says. It's actually the opposite. Another way you could render this verse grammatically is this way. We never shared in Christ if we do not hold our original confidence to the end. As Guthrie says, perseverance is not gain salvation, but demonstrates the reality that true salvation indeed has been inaugurated. Falling away indicates you were not saved in the first place. Paul says very similar things. Romans 8, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? The strongest, perhaps, Colossians 1.22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if... Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting 
from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Exactly the same thing the writer of Hebrews is saying. Here's the bottom line. Don't turn away from the gospel. Hold fast to Jesus. His original readers were in danger of being like the wilderness generation. That generation didn't persevere. They fell away, redeemed out of Egypt, so it seemed that we're never made it to the promised land. Don't be like them. Be faithful. Now, in the remainder of our time, I want to consider together five principles about faithfulness we can glean from this chapter. These are in your outline. This is number three. And the first is letter A, the focus of faithfulness. Think carefully about this Jesus. This is how the New Living Translation paraphrases this. Think carefully about this Jesus. Al Mohler says this, The author reminds us that the ultimate axiom for the intellectual thought life of the believer is Jesus Christ. Considering Jesus should animate the intellectual patterns of all believers and recalibrate their biblical worldview. I remember when I was a young person, I asked my grandfather, who was born in 1904, what was the biggest difference living back then versus now? Think of all the different things you could say. He answered almost immediately. He said, you don't have time to think today. He said, I used to take the horses to town by myself, two hours each way, no distractions. I could think through and ponder things deeply. There's no natural opportunity for you to do that today. Now, he said this to me in the 1980s. This is long before iPhones. Today, this is exponentially true, isn't it? To think and consider anything today requires incredible discipline. We're called to meditate on Christ, taking special time considering deeply the person of Jesus. Chuck Swindoll says this, We spend so much time through the week considering our profits and losses. We should consider Jesus just as carefully. Work over your thoughts about him. Ponder. Dig deeply into his character. Read him into your world. See him permeating your life, even down to the valleys you walk through. Think carefully about this Jesus. What will you find? End quote. One way you can get a healthy view of Jesus is by reading the Gospels, examining his interactions with people. Many of you know Alex Strauch from LBC. I remember a sermon he preached many years ago. He said he had, he had restructured his personal daily devotional time at that time so that he always reads just a little of the Gospels at the, as part of his reading. Because there's something transformational about considering Jesus, his actions, his words, his engagement with people. Faithfulness begins with a healthy and correct view of Jesus. Especially important in times of discouragement. Some of you may need to hear this today. Philip says this. Perhaps the most deadly temptations come from our own feeling of unworthiness. Our discouragement because of sin. And the accusations of Satan that plague our weak conscience. We sin and the devil tells us, how can you call yourself a Christian? Isn't it true you have no part of Christ? Why don't you just give up the facade? End quote. When you hear that voice, that accusation, consider 
Jesus. You can say, yes, I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. The Bible tells us a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He is gentle and lowly. He's approachable. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. As Dane Ortland brings out beautifully in his excellent book that many of you are reading, we sometimes get tired of other people and their failures constantly, even loved ones. We project that on Jesus. But if you are in Christ, Jesus is never tired of you. He's always near. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. Go to him. As Orland says, the Christian life boils down to two steps. Number one, go to Jesus. Number two, see number one. (laughs) Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. As Paul demonstrates, the more you mature in the Christian life, the more you will want to know him. Jesus says in Matthew 11, learn from me. Not just learn about me. Learn from me. Do you know him that way? Are you close to him? Is fellowship with Jesus the best part of your day? We grow in faithfulness by focusing on and thinking carefully about Jesus. Letter B, the will of faithfulness. Choose to be faithful. Verse 7, today if you hear his voice. Spurgeon said, every command of Christ bears today's date. If a thing is right, it should be done at once. If it is wrong, stop it immediately. Duties that are put off or delayed tend to harden the heart. Isn't that true? That's exactly what can happen. John Wesley agrees. Responding to the word we hear from God is the first priority for each day. Not to be put off until another day. Listen to what he says. The day of life will end soon, and perhaps the day of grace yet sooner. So act. Wesley also spoke of nurturing a tender conscience, sensitive, he said, to the slightest pricks of the Spirit's goad. What a great image. Faithfulness is not just emotional or intellectual. It is an act of the will. The assumption in this chapter, of course, is that you choose to remain faithful to God. It is not enough to be emotionally moved by these examples. It's not enough to be logically convinced that, yes, what he's saying is true. They must act. And we're in danger of this constantly, aren't we, today? The abundance of great biblical teaching available to us. We're constantly in danger of filling our minds, but slowly drifting away in our hearts, becoming desensitized to the Spirit's goad, as Wesley says. We must read his word prayerfully, not just intellectually, that he might expose areas of disobedience, or neglect, and by the Spirit's power we must act on those things. Is it a battle? Of course it is. We should should expect conflict. That's actually a good sign. Sam Albury said this, the sign that the Spirit is powerfully at work in you is not that there's no battle with sin, but there's a huge battle with sin. Guthrie says we should ask two questions after hearing the word preached. First, what do I need to confess? From what do I need to repent? 
Second, how should my life be lived this week based on what I've heard? We must choose to be faithful. Letter C, the obstacles to faithfulness. Beware of sin and unbelief. Sin is tricky. It disguises itself as something good. The lie for the Hebrews was this. Surely God wants me to be safe, not to be harmed for my faith. And that lie can deceive us as well. But perhaps today this lie is more prevalent. Surely God wants me to be happy, to follow my desires, to be myself. Both these lies are pernicious, and they're both from the pit of hell. Sin does not reveal itself in its ugliness, but comes subtly offering advantages. Spurgeon said this, If the devil would come in the shape of the devil, he would do little mischief. But he assumes the fashion of an angel of light, and that is how he causes us so much sin and sorrow. Disobedience flows from unbelief. Guthrie said the sinful, disobedient heart turns away from God because it does not truly believe him. The heart is the source of our desires. The world says, follow your heart. The problem is you can't trust your heart. Your desires may not be good. In fact, they frequently are not good. And we need the Bible to tell us that. We can't discern that from within our fallen nature. That's the lie of our culture. The Bible says you cannot trust your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Don't trust your heart. Trust the Bible. Kevin DeYoung makes this point about the most oft-repeated lie in movies, especially kids' movies, it seems. Be true to yourself. What horrible advice. Which part of yourself? Be true to yourself as a lustful adulterer? Be true to yourself as an angry person who wants to kill someone? What if that's my authentic self? No, don't be true to yourself. That would be disastrous. Be true to your identity in Jesus. Don't be true to your fallen self. Be true to who God made you to be. Be true to the scripture. Read his word and discern. What lies am I believing? What am, I, am I living and thinking as if God is not trustworthy regarding what's best for me? Consider, it's amazing, the wilderness generation surmised Egypt's easier. Egypt is safer. Egypt is better. Let's return to slavery. What a deception. By what lies are we being deceived? To where are we tempted to go back? Beware of not believing God. Letter D, the evidence of faithfulness, persevering to the end. First, notice what's not the evidence of genuine faith. Evidence is not experiencing some amazing work of God. The wilderness generation witnessed all kinds of amazing works of God in the Exodus. Phenomenal displays of God's power in saving them from the Egyptians. Pretty amazing experiences. Yet they fell away, many of them did. Likewise, what, regardless of what faith, uh, amazing spiritual experiences you have had, that's not finally the ultimate evidence that you're in Christ. The evidence is persevering in the faith, walking in obedience to the end. First John talks about having certainty, assurance that you're a child of God. How do I know for sure I'm a Christian? First John 2.3 
By this we know we have come to know him. We've experienced amazing miracles. No, that's not what it says. By this we know we have come to know him. We got super emotional at our conversion. Doesn't say that either. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The wilderness generation did not. They wanted to make things easier for themselves. So much easier to go back to Egypt, they thought. The audience here in Hebrews were tempted to escape persecution by denying Christ. It would be so much easier to go back to Judaism. Today, there's an incredible pressure, especially on our young people, to compromise morally and sexually, to maximize pleasure, safety, avoid suffering. It's so much easier to just go with the flow, do what I want. Listen, our area of emphasis this year is not that Jesus is easier. (laughs) It's that Jesus is better. Big difference. As someone has said, you may stumble into hell, but you'll never stumble into heaven. You cannot follow Jesus with ease or carelessness or neglect. The way is narrow and difficult, and few find it, frankly. Your faith must persevere to the end. That's the evidence of faithfulness. Now, this sets on a doctrine called perseverance of the saints, or some say eternal security. Those who are truly regenerate, truly saved, will persevere in the faith. The scripture is clear about that. If they fall away, they demonstrate they never knew Christ. This is called apostasy. We'll see this frequently in Hebrews. As Spurgeon said, none truly belong to Christ but those who persevere in grace. Temporary Christians are not really Christians. If someone does not continue in faith and obedience, or as the author says, their original confidence, verse 14, has not in fact been held firm, then they're in the danger he's talking about if they do not repent. So while it's true, no one can lose their salvation, John 10, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand, you can lose your assurance that you have been saved. You can demonstrate you never were in the Father's hand to begin with. And you need to repent while there's still time. The evidence of faithfulness is persevering to the end. Finally, letter E, the means of faithfulness. Fully engage the church. What is the antidote to apostasy? What are the means the Lord has given us to continue in faithfulness? Verse 13, exhort one another daily. Listen, individualism is an enemy of faithfulness. And it is rampant in our culture. And, unfortunately, in the broader church. The enemy loves it. You go off alone, you get picked off. The Lord has given us the local church. The Hebrews needed it then, and we need it as much today. Some in the original audience, as I mentioned, were starting to miss the meetings. They were not not concerned about gathering as a church. We'll see this especially in chapter 10. And this was a grave concern to the author. And it's just as important today. You know, if I miss just one Lord's Supper with you all, I notice something in my heart the following week, and it's not good. We need to be concerned about missing the rhythms the Lord has given us, the Lord's Supper, the ministry of the Word, the fellowship, corporate prayer and praise. We need to be concerned about home groups and one-on-one discipleship. These are all means of faithfulness the Lord has given us. The remedy to apostasy, 
The antidote to falling away is the mutual exhortation to continue in the things of God. Encouraging each other day by day. Holding each other accountable because sin is deceitful, isn't it? You know, COVID has tragically increased our number of shut-ins. And others who are unable to be around other people. They would love to be here with us, but they cannot. So we minister to them in special ways. They, they can see some of our service online, but they are painfully aware it's not the same. Just like when I'm traveling for work, I can FaceTime my family. It's better than nothing. But it's not the same as being at the dinner table with them. Likewise, these brothers and sisters are painfully aware there's no such thing as virtual church or virtual Lord's Supper. And they desperately miss meeting with us because they understand how valuable it is. Just ask the Swartleys. I see them in the back, and I'm sure they're grateful to be here. Ask what it's like. Our main concern, however, is for those who don't seem to miss it. Those for whom it's not that valuable. Willingly forsaking the assembly. COVID just makes that easier. They're in the greatest danger because they're deliberately missing the very means of faithfulness the author's talking about. So please, let's give encouragement an exhortation to one another, and receive exhortation from one another. This isn't just for the pastors. If you haven't seen someone in our church family for a while, reach out to them. Check in. Give them a call. We need each other to safeguard against sin and unbelief, which can so easily deceive any of us. I want to close by considering this word, exhort. The Greek is parakaleo, meaning to come alongside, para, and call out, kaleo. Growing up in southwestern Minnesota, we had a neighbor farmer in a four-wheeler trail across the field between our farms. Great Christian brother. The hardest working person I've ever met in my life. He was a hog farmer and a crop farmer. He was also a competitive bodybuilder. Placing once in the Mr. Minnesota contest. And they had a full weightlifting gym in their basement. And when I was on break from college, he'd let me come and work out in his basement. And sometimes he'd come down and work out with me and spot me. And I always had significantly more soreness in my muscles the next few days after he had joined me. Because he'd always get me to do one or two more reps than I would have. He'd always be super intense. Come on, let's go. Don't quit. Don't give up. That's exactly what this word means. He came alongside me and called me out when I was tempted to give up. We desperately need that in the Christian life, brothers and sisters. Every one of us does. People to come alongside us and call us out. Christian growth and discipleship happen in the local church family. This is a team sport, if you will. Reading scripture together, praying and praising God together, thinking about God's faithfulness together, talking honestly about our jobs, our relationships, our struggles, our fears. We need each other. We need the encouragement and exhortation of one another to keep going. That's the way the church was designed. A solitary Christian or even a solitary Christian family, is a contradiction in terms and inherently dangerous. The church is the means the Lord has given all of us to continue 
and faithfulness. So let's not neglect it. Let's fully engage the church that we might together hold fast to Jesus to the very end. Would you please stand with me as we close? Perhaps you're listening to this and you do not know Jesus this way. You can. You can know him as your Lord and your Savior. He came from heaven to give his life as a ransom, to die on that cross for sinners and resurrected for eternal life and forgiveness of sins for any who would come to him. Please come to him. Turn from the lies of the culture, the lies about yourself. Put your faith and trust in him. He will give you eternal life and forgive your sins and give you the Holy Spirit to guide you in the word and give you the church to come alongside you. Our Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. As we consider him, we are overwhelmed by his love, by his mercy, by his patience. And Lord, please, as those here this morning who hear this need to repent, may they do so. Lord, if they need comfort, may you comfort them. You're so good. We're so thankful for your church to help us in these things. Bless us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen.